work our way through the book of James. I'm aware that it is uh, the Memorial Day weekend. Uh, it's kind of a, uh, it's a celebratory time, but at the same time, it's a, a time of solemn reflection. Um, I like, personally, I like to be reminded on Memorial Day that there is a cost, a, a high cost to the very freedoms that we're uh, exercising today. Um, I know in this country, most of us born in a free country, we grow up and uh, it just kind of becomes the norm and we take that for granted often, but uh, there was blood shed uh, for the freedoms that we're enjoying today. And I think Memorial Day is always a good time to be reminded of that. Uh, I think the book of James is certainly applicable to that as well because I think as we do that and as we're reminded that so much of the liberty that we enjoy uh, as a nation from our founding has its roots uh, in the ultimate liberty we have in Christ, in Christian Judeo uh, truth, uh, biblical truth. And so the more we see our nation departing from that foundation, the more unmoored we become from uh, a moral compass and freedom gets distorted to become whatever I want to do. And, a, and an anti-freedom caucus is anybody that prevents me from doing what I don't want to do. Uh, well, our founders uh, clearly understood that our Constitution was inadequate uh, for any other than a, a moral people, a people who were grounded in those truths. And I think we're in times of trial uh, already. Um, we, we go through those and small ones in our daily lives and in our, in our lives just as they unfold in this fallen world. But I think more and more uh, Christians are entering into a period of trial where we're going to be uh, refined in some ways in our faith. And that's really what James is speaking of. It's been really helpful to me uh, to go back through the book of James and view that through the lens of trials. Uh, I've, been, I've read through the book and come back through it and come back through it again, uh, trying to hold that uh, intention in my mind because I do believe that's what James was writing to, Christians who had been dispersed abroad probably as a result of some of the persecution that arose after the martyr of Stephen, uh, the martyrdom of Stephen. And they were generally in Roman provinces spread abroad and probably in many cases a fairly small contingent of them. They were definitely a minority in those communities. And so they were uh, living life now in a very different way from the culture in which they were uh, implanted there. So I think James is very serious about helping them to know how to live in a place like that. Even through the first chapter, we have exhortations in regards to those trials. And essentially is this way, in the midst of trials, rejoice, seek the wisdom of God, glory in your humiliation, persevere, guard against temptation, and look to God for the good and the perfect. Now, those are pretty strong uh, encouragements or pretty strong exhortations in regards to a people that are living in trials. And so we're picking up, I want to back up to verse 18 and then read through verse 27, but we're uh, reading those verses this morning. Chapter 1, verse 18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. 
Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently in the perfect law or the law of liberty and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God, our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, on this Memorial Day weekend, we do thank you for the sacrifices made on our behalf that we might enjoy the liberties that we are partaking of at this very moment. Lord, that we might walk out of this place not, not immediately in fear for our lives, for having lifted up your name, for having worshipped you. And so, Father, we thank you for those. And, Father, we're humbled as well by their sacrifice, but more so by the sacrifice of Christ who, who didn't come into to battle, to fight, and lose his life in the process, but who willingly came into this world with the express purpose of laying down his life. And upon that sacrifice is the true freedom from which the freedom we enjoy in this nation was birthed. So, Father, we acknowledge first and foremost the sacrifice of Christ as Americans and as, as Christians. And, Father, I pray that you would help us this morning in your word. Lord, help me in the speaking and the communicating and help those who are here, Father, by your spirit to hear these words in the very depths of our heart. As James says here, that the word may become implanted in us so that we might be found faithful and to stand and to honor and glorify you in the midst of trials. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I backed up to verse 18 because as I was sharing from verses 9 through 17, I read that verse and I'm certain that it attaches to those verses and certainly follows up on what he said there. But it also, I think, introduces the verses that follow. And I just thought it was interesting because he says there in the exercise of his will. So this is an exercise of the Lord's will. He brought us forth. He doesn't tell us from what necessarily. He may mean the trials. Uh, I think ultimately he means from life or from death into life. But ultimately by his will he brought us forth by the instrumentality here by the word of truth. Now I don't. I don't think that's irrelevant to what he's about to say when he says we need to be quick to hear. And I think it definitely ties into the temptation and how we're to resist all of those things. It is a reminder that we are brought forth by those things. Not always, I think, from the trials themselves, but revealed in, but brought us forth or manifested us as having been brought forth from death unto life by how we are sustained in the midst of trials. In other words, 
by enduring the trials as James is communicating throughout this letter, we manifest ourselves as having been brought forth by the word of truth into, out, of li- out of death into life. We show ourselves to be Christians. And I think that may have some indication of what he means here. He may mean something wider and he may even be thinking something more narrow. I can't get exactly and precisely into the mind of James, but that's what I've been trying to do all this week. I want to I know what's underneath James. Why is he urging and pushing us in the direction of these things? And when he says that we were brought forth by the word of truth, I think he's laying down a foundational principle there that we're to think about things through, especially in the verses that follow. In fact, I love it here. He says that we were brought forth as a kind of first fruits of his creatures. I wondered there if he wasn't relating that to their relative minority in those providences. In other words, through the trials and through trusting in Him and through His Spirit and through His truth, He he manifests us as children of God in those environments. We're a sort of first fruits in those provinces. They see now what a Christian looks like, and they're very different. They're very different from the world. They respond to strains and stresses and trials in ways that we would not have expected of the world. They are in those provinces a sort of first fruits, as it were, of the creatures of God, brought forth through the trials and manifested as having come from death into life by Christ. I think that's maybe what James has in mind here. But all that sets up his first imperative here in this passage of Scripture. But he says, first of all, you know. One translation I was reading or one, uh, one reference to this was it was imperative in like he's saying this. Know this. You need to take this to your, unto your understanding. You need to lay this down in your thinking as a matter of fact. It is a, an imperative. Do this essentially. Know this. We need to feel it with that weight as well because it's relevant to how we endure trials. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. The first one, this quick to hear, is fascinating to me because I think it sets the context for not only a progression, but also demonstrates an emphasis that we're to have, especially in the midst of trials. By the way, uh, viewing this book like the Proverbs, I think, is sound. And I think you could take each of James's exhortations and stand alone in broad application, and they are truths to be ascribed to. But I think the reason, the reason James is giving it in the context of trials is because trials intensify our propensity to act wrongly. It's the suffering and the pressure that will move us away from calm reflection upon truth and deliberate actions in regards to those truths. It's in panic that we default to the flesh. And so when you hear this, understand that it is pressure that intensifies these experiences and makes them all the more dangerous for us in times of trial. So it really has intensified this whole book for me to think about it in terms of the pressure that the world brings upon the Christian who's trying to be faithful. So the word quick here was interesting as well. The King James uses the word swift. 
But the word has the idea to do is doing a little research, but it has the idea of doing uh, fleet. The word fleet was used. And I, when I think of that, I think of fleet of foot. Uh, to be fleet is to be not only swift in your pace, but also to be agile and nimble. It is to be ready. It is to be in a state of readiness. That's what he means by be that way in regards to hearing. Now, he doesn't tell us specifically what to hear. But he has just laid down a principle, which was that we have been led forth by the word of truth. And I think that must be underneath what we're to be listening for and to be of ready mind in times of trial. We are to be nimble of mind, fleet of mind, determinative in our recollections of the word of truth. That's going to be critical in times of trial. What's the first thing that seems to come natural to us in times of trial? Not that. In fact, I was looking at these three, and we usually react in the reverse. Trials come, suffering starts, we get angry, and then we speak out of our anger. And then on the other end of that, when we find ourselves without recourse, we start thinking about things. Our instinct is to do this and to live in times of trial and generally perhaps in the exact opposite of what James is exhorting us to here. So to be fleet of mind. Uh, it's interesting to me as well if we're to be, if that's what he means we're to be hearing, I think it would also translate out into this idea of being quick to hear in regards to what's going on around you. Hope and I were talking about this text and I was th saying to her and thinking about how many arguments might we have avoided had we been quick to hear. Of ready mind, not only to have the word of truth sown in our hearts, which he says later on needs to be implanted, but hearing the word of truth and actually hearing what she or I was saying in conversation. To be nimble of mind and have a ready mind to, to listen. Because had I done that and not read between the lines and made presumptions about what her intent was, there may have been a lot of arguments that were never had. Just simply by being quick to hear. To have a mind ready and able. Another word that was used was a prompt. To be prompt in our hearing. To me, it was just so convicting. In times of trial, essentially, do not yield to temptation, but rather be ready in heart and mind to hear the word of truth. As he's already said in this passage, you've asked for faith in, or for wisdom in faith. Be alert now in mind and spirit for the word of wisdom given. I mean, this is building, I think, upon his equipping us to endure times of trial and times of suffering under trial. Why does he give us this reminder, I think? He gives us one because of the danger he had warned of in chapter 1, verses 14 through 16 about temptation. What does he say there? Everyone is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. You're not, you're not listening for the word of truth. You're being carried along by instinct and by your default nature. So he lays this down, I think, as a reinforcing the warning of not listening, not hearing First and foremost, the word of truth, but by ignoring it, we also don't hear what other folks are actually saying. I've noticed about myself that reading between the lines, you're right and, and wrong about 50-50 of the time. Yeah, you may be right, but then you might just as well be wrong. 
And if you base all your speaking that follows your hearing upon presumptions you make about what's in between the lines, you're, you're subject half the time to get into arguments based on things they didn't even say. I, I'm fascinated sometimes because I'll, I'll say something and an argument ensues and, and I'm thinking, what did I say to initiate that? Well, it wasn't what you said, it's what you meant. What? I'm thinking to myself, I said what I meant. Why do you want to insert some meaning under the words that I said when the words themselves don't say that? It's because they're not listening. They're presuming what my motivations are and they're, they're speaking as they were in their own conscience and not listening. And so that's the outcropping or the, or the extending out of this principle of listening before we speak. The quickness of that, the fleet of mind, the nimbleness and agility in a ready mind and ready to promptly hear, to be interested first and foremost in the word of truth. Another reason for the reminder may be because in suffering we are prone to become dull of hearing, defaulting to reactionary and instinctive impulses. That's so true. It's so true. I don't know about you, but in times of relative calm and peace, I have time and I don't feel rushed to deliberate upon the scriptures. I go to a passage and I study those through and I, and I get out my concordance and I find parallel passages and I research it out and I just build me a little systematic theology on this particular subject. And I have all the time in the world, it seems, to deliberate upon how I should act in a certain situation. But boy, when that storm hits... There's not much time for that. The word has to have already been implanted and there has to be a spirit given resolve ahead of time that in those moments I will be slow to speak but quick to hear. I will deliberate and listen for the truth of the word of God. I will listen through the Holy Spirit for God to speak that truth into my mind before I speak. So I think James is giving us this, us as a, this to us as a reminder that we are particularly prone not to do it in times of trial. We've all been through trials, as I've said in every message from James. Right now, at any given time, all of us may be under some sort of trial to one degree or intensity to another. Some under great trial, some under minor trials. But in all those things, we are prone by our old nature, which he speaks to later on, to, to default to instinctive and impulsive activity and thinking and speaking in those times. The Christian principle laid down here is to resist that, not to succumb to that instinct. Another one I think he means here as a, as a reminder is that we be diligently attentive to what the Lord would reveal at any moment, not just in times of trial, but be training ourselves in times of relative peace to, to act instinctively in this way. One of the reasons for training for law enforcement and those in that area and even in military, one of the reasons for the routine and everyday relentless training is that this anticipation that when the pressure comes, you will act instinctively. The training will have taken such root in you that it will become your instinct to act in that moment. That's why we see police officers running towards gunfire and firemen running towards flames and soldiers running towards gunfire. It's because what they're doing is against everything in their nature. I don't know about you, but I've been shot at before. 
And I can tell you my first instinct wasn't to run towards it. It was to run away from it. And it was random. They weren't trying to kill me. They was trying to scare me. And it worked. Because my instinct said, you better get out of here. You better get down, get low, get under that fence and get away from that fishing pond. Because <laughs> they're going to kill you if you don't. They train themselves to respond against their instinct by running into the fire, into the gunfire, into the thing that is most threatening. And I think in some ways this is the way it ought to be with us. We ought to be thinking about what James is saying and by the word of God and by prayer and by practice putting it into effect in the smaller trials so that when the big one comes we don't have to be so frightened that we'll react, overreact in that moment by the impulses of our flesh but that the word of God having been implanted will come to bear in that moment as I said it might also he mentions here quick to hear refer generally to the hearing particularly in society and all in all those interpersonal reactions as a general rule as I've already said many a dispute might have been solved or might have been avoided altogether had we were just listening in the context of trials, I think as well, a failure to hear or to be undiscerning might contribute to words or actions that unnecessarily intensify those circumstances. And that could be dangerous. I thought about that. It's possible that if I don't hear, I speak words that are not discerning and might actually contribute to the intensity of the suffering that I'm under. In fact, if it's in a severe situation, in a situation of persecution, it may hasten uh, their reaction to put me to death for the very thing that they had no intention of putting me to death. But now because I have spoken without listening or hearing, I have, I have jeopardized my own life. And so it could have dire consequences. It's just not a wise thing to be speaking before we think. We, we all know that. But James is saying trials intensify our proneness to do that very thing. So he's laying down it to this letter that's going out to people who are under trials. Beware because your default nature is to speak first, think later. Rather be quick to hear, not quick to speak. Not quick to speak. Now, having said that, he goes on to the second part of this, which is quick to hear, but everyone must be also slow to speak. I think he's laying down here the contrast, quick listening, slow speaking. In a trial, as I've said, the very reverse is probable. In sufferings and in trials, especially if we feel we've been done an injustice, what do we do first? We air our complaints. We demand justice. Our rights, we defend ourselves. We condemn our oppressors. We plead our case. Most of the time, without a moment's thought, we instinctively know that we have been done wrong. And as Americans particularly, we have every right to make our complaint known. We are, we are by nature launched out into speaking without even thinking. Maybe you say, well, we've done our thinking ahead of time. <laughs> Not in this instance you didn't. It may have been a way to navigate this with the word, uh, to bring the word of truth to bear in this, to shape our own perceptions and our own views of it, and even to make our arguments against those who may be unjustly treating us. We hadn't thought about that. We just launch out into this defense of ourselves. That's why it's so important to be slow to speak. In fact, 
I thought about this, but my grandpa used to have this saying, but he, and I'm sure you've heard it, but he, he always told me growing up, the Lord gave you two ears, son, and one mouth so that you'd listen twice as much as you talk. That's sound wisdom. That's exactly what we don't do. It's as if the Lord in trials gives us two mouths and one ear. And I've learned something else about this in practically and in regards to the Word of God. But I can't speak and listen at the same time. I can listen and then respond and speak. Or I can speak and wait and, and say what I have to say and then listen to your response. But I've never been able to be talking and listening at the same time. And so there's an order, but there's also an emphasis here. Be quick, be ready and nimble and attentive to listen. Concentrate on that. And then be slow and guarded and cautious and even reluctant, I thought, to speak. Be careful about opening your mouth. Doesn't come natural to us, especially when things are tough, when there are trials in place. And trials and in general, it isn't possible, as I've said, to speak and to, and to hear at the same time. But James gives us not only here this order, but this emphasis. Another thing to think about is in fallen men, the tongue, unrestrained, by the way, is a great danger. James is going to get to that in chapter 4. In fact, he says it's a little bitty member. It's like a little bitty spark, but good grief, it can set on fire a forest. And he even says of the tongue that it is, it is wicked or evil and full of poison. Well, I don't know about you, but if I've got an element in my body that's, that's described like that, I don't want to be too hasty in using it. In fact, unrestrained means there's no thought given. There's not the word of truth upon which it's based. It's just reflecting what I'm feeling in my emotions. I just let her loose. It's funny to me in our society that we, we admire somebody who speaks their mind, right? I mean, you've heard it said that before. Sometimes that's not a good thing because sometimes there's not, there's not a word of truth guiding the thinking and the, what, what's substitute as their mind is their instincts and they just say whatever they're instinctively going to say. That's not always a good thing. In fact, that's a downright dangerous thing given the nature of the tongue of a fallen man. And so he's warning us. In James 1.19, so the guard against the danger of a two, two, is twofold, according to James, to be a ready hearer and a cautious speaker. Those things are hand in hand. There is a time to speak. I like that he says that, and I think there even is a time when righteous indignation should rise up in the heart of the righteous, especially when they see the Word of God or God Himself degraded. There should, it should stir us to a righteous indignation. So He's not ruling out speaking and even becoming angry in certain situations, but He's saying be cautious about that because those things are so natural to you, your anger and your speaking without thinking. What's not natural to you and I in our falling natures, fallen natures is thinking and, and listening and what's even more unnatural is doing so according to the truth, the word of truth by which we've been brought forth. That's what's most unnatural to you. And I think what's striking about James and this book sent out to people who were undergoing trials whom he said to be joyful in the midst of those, what's really striking to me is that it is that exact circumstance that makes us less likely to do this. 
In fact, we will resort to our flesh and to our instincts. So as a guard, he says that. I thought about those words and how quickly they are. I've shared with people recently and have in the past before, but one of the passages in Job that really captures me, because I remember hearing the stories, the patience of Job, and he, and he was in the sense that he never cursed God. But it wasn't as though Job was silent. In fact, his friends rebuke him for some of the things. I mean, he said things such as, if I could just have an audience before God and I, I could make my case and lay out my case before him, then he would see that I'm innocent in this matter. I mean, that's, pretty, that's pretty, pretty bold speaking there. But his friends rebuke him for that. And Job says something, and I've always been fascinated. And he says to his friends, don't you know that those are words for the wind? They're just coming out of my gut. I'm not thinking and listening to the Word of God here. I'm, I'm reacting from the pain that I'm going through. They're words for the wind. They're, they're, they're just blown out and they fly away. They, they're not reflective of my deepest heart's emotions. They are reflective of my pain. That's the mouth speaking. That's, that's the quick speaking Job's talking, Job's talking about there. Even in the Proverbs particularly, but one that came to mind was a soft answer turns away wrath. You speak too quickly, you may have a harsh answer and you may actually provoke more wrath against yourself. But if we listen, if we hear first and deliberately and choose and select the answer in the speaking, it may be that it turns away wrath. But if we speak harshly and quickly without thinking, it may actually provoke wrath and anger to be intensified against against us unnecessarily how often have you made matters worse by what you said all the time in fact I can take a minor a minor disagreement at home sometimes and blow it into a three-day war over when we're going to mow the yard I joke with Hope all the time, but over the years I do it kind of as a little joke but if she wants it mowed on Thursday I make sure I mow it on Friday if she wants it mowed on Friday, I get to it on Thursday. And I just kind of, it's kind of a little a sporty little jab. We do it one another. And she, she figured me out now. She actually tells me the day opposite when she wants it mowed. If she says, I really want it mowed Friday, but I'll tell him Thursday and he'll mow it Friday. So she's smarter than me. But how many times have you made situations worse by speaking without thinking? And keep in mind here, when I say without thinking, I'm talking about how it relates to the word of truth by which we're brought forth. I'm talking about speaking, having been saturated with the truth of God's word and being shaped in our thinking and our responses by that truth and then speaking in a manner consistent with that truth. That's what I mean by thinking. So how often do you and I tend to speak by nature without doing that? only to intensify our own suffering. In modern society as well, I thought about this, but think of social media. Uh, one of the dangers I think we see in our day to day, especially on some of those larger platforms, is whatever you feel in the moment, you type it in and it's gone. You don't get to reel it back. You can delete it later on, but it goes all around the world on the internet. I'm mad and I, boom, sinned. It's a, dangerous, it's a dangerous thing because how many of those people gave real thought, consistent and considerable thought to the words they selected in those texts? 
And sometimes the technology itself will mess, mess you up. I remember somebody asked me what I was planning or asked me to do something one time and I texted in and sent it on to them, my response, and I glanced back down and it says, I can't, I don't think I can make it. I'm herniating. <laughs> Watch out for spell check. I don't know what I was spelling, but the spell check called it herniating and it sent my message and they wrote back and said, what? You're herniating? <laughs> what are you lifting? So not only is the technology itself dangerous, but it's dangerous because it gives us a ready platform and encourages the very thing that James is warning against. It encourages you not to think. Somebody responded, you wanted to get the first comment in. Somebody responded, you got to say something to that. And pretty soon you built all this stuff up. That's exactly why I went off all social media. I don't do Facebook because of that very thing. Because I was so provoked to write something at the moment and nip it in the bud. And most of the stuff I wrote there, I look back on and I think that was not well thought out. That was not ultimately helpful to this situation. It did not address the root issue and therefore it just became a part of the noise floating around on the internet. Be slow to speak. Disarm your, disarm your social media ability. There ought to be a time limit on it. If you can rig it that way, whatever you see on there, there ought to be something you type the message in, send, send, and then the machine itself sends it 20 minutes later in case you change your mind in 20 minutes. Because I don't think a lot of times we think even more than 30 seconds before we send those out. James counsels the exact opposite. Notice here in trials that everything is magnified. It is intensified and an urgency arises which compels us to take some action to respond. We are prone to act upon instinct alone, especially in those times. Being slow to speak serves as a check on our fleshly impulses and as such becomes a guard against our falling into the temptation that he's already spoken of. Those two things hand in hand. I feel this, this circumstance has pushed me to act impulsively, but I will deliberately now slow down, think, listen to the Word of God, listen to the Spirit of God, listen for His guidance and wisdom in this moment. And at the, at, after that's sufficiently done, and I am beginning to be moved to a place to where I think I need to say something, be slow and cautious and careful and deliberate about the very words that I choose. And then and only then say those words. You see how they're a check? Those two things in tandem are a check against impulsive behavior, which is exactly what gets us in trouble. Not only generally in life, but particularly in trials. James has given us sound wisdom here. And in the last one, I think James anticipates the progression of these as well because he takes it one step further. Be slow to anger. This is what really, really struck me this week. If I don't, if I don't, if I'm not slow to, if I'm not quick to hear, then I'm too quick to speak. I say things, they're just more or less expressions of my emotions at the moment. And in the saying of things, they're feeding back to me, they're actually inflaming the emotions that produce the rash speaking. And pretty soon that elevates into outright anger. And now I'm acting upon anger. Now I'm just speaking to hurt. I'm speaking to defend. I'm, I'm just speaking whatever comes to mind out of a wounded spirit. And I'm just letting it all hang out. And I'm destroying. It's like scorched earth. 
And I think James anticipates this is where it leads to. You don't, you're too quick to, to speak. You need to be slow to speak and quick to think, quick to hear, quick to listen. Let the Word of God and the Spirit of God, Christian, calm you down and shape you and guide your thinking. And then, after appropriate deliberations upon that and the truth of the Word, then speak to the matter. And then let the Word and trust the Lord to take it from there. It need not escalate into anger, but that's exactly what happens. In fact, I was in Hope and I conversation. What happens is the thing said made me angry to begin with. You rubbed me the wrong way. So without thinking, I responded with my words. Quick speaking. And then you responded, and that heightened my anger. Then we started going back and forth, and all along the way, this, es- this thing is escalating, and now we're having an all-out fight. Simply because both of us, in our case, and both of you in your cases, ceased, did not take the time to listen. First and foremost, to the Spirit of God, the truth of God, and, and secondly, to the person you are engaged in a conversation with. And for that one omission, the other two unfold. Quick speaking and quick anger. High rising, hot temper. You got set off quickly. To me, the wisdom of that progression and the way he lays this out, he's, I think James sees the progression. I think he, I think he understands the emphasis he's making here. We're, we need to do exactly like my grandpa said. Listen twice as long as we speak. We need to take the time to hear, first and foremost, the truth of God's Word. And secondly, what's actually being said in the conversation or in the circumstance in which we find ourselves. Notice what he says here in verse 19. When he concludes that, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Look at verse 20. Why? For the anger, your anger, I would say, does not achieve the righteousness of God. And he's talking to Christians here. The outcome of this is not the righteousness of God. It is the outcome of this this rash speaking, lack of hearing, escalating anger is not in in the end in its accomplishment displaying the righteousness of God. It doesn't. In fact, it does the very opposite. Now you've not listened and you've been carried along by your lust and you may win the battle in all of your argument and you may actually push away the source of your trial in that moment. But the end thereof is not a display of the righteousness of God, which would have, had it been exercised, would have manifested you as having been brought from death unto life in the midst of that trial and in that circumstance. Being driven by our emotions and our instincts and impulses apart from the truth of God's word and by his spirit does not in the end achieve the righteousness of God. They see nothing of the righteousness of God in that. If anything, the world sees it as you, you won the argument. You argued them down. You, you were louder than they were. You were more aggressive than they were. And they backed away. Congratulations. You win. That doesn't achieve the righteousness of God. What, it, what shows it even more is that you endure the trial patiently, quietly, listening for the Word of God and the Spirit of God, and enduring what comes against you, even if it's an injustice. 1 Corinthians 6 talks about those taking one another to court. Paul says, why not rather be wronged for the glory of God? Endure the wrong. What about that as an option? That doesn't even come to our mind when we're in, in troubling times. 
not instinctively. And so it doesn't reveal the righteousness of God. Verse 21, I'll come back to these, I think, later. But after having said that in verse 21, he says, Therefore, by reason of this, since this is true, put aside now, putting aside all filthiness and all. I love this phrase because it really caught my attention. All that remains of wickedness. I think he's speaking to what would motivate us to not listen and to speak too quickly and to become angry too quickly and to be carried away with temptation. Even in these brethren, there is something remaining of wickedness. Set it aside. That's the key. Identify this impulse and this thing that came to your mind, what you ought to do in this moment, and recognize it as what's left of wickedness and the filthiness of the old man. Set it aside by the power of Christ and by the truth of His Word. Don't be acting. Don't let that be the motivator for your activities, even in times of trial, especially in times of trial. Set it aside. I can testify to you it is of no good. It doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God, and it certainly doesn't contribute to your growing in faith, to be exercising or acting out of those impulses. In fact, that is the very thing that needs to be crucified in us daily. How do we do that? Verse 21, in humility, we receive the word implanted, which is able to save the soul. I love that he said the word implanted. I get the idea there that the Word is not something we read and memorized. It is something that had been assimilated into our very being. Our mind thinks truth. It is is saturating our worldview. It saturates our interactions with others. Our mind reverts to that truth as a guide to how we relate to one another. Let the Word in humility, let that Word be implanted in you. Let that become the catalyst for your activities in silence and hearing and being slow to speak and slow to anger. Let that be the truth that is guiding you, enabling you, empowering you to follow here in obedience. Live your life like this in the provinces under trial and you will demonstrate straight that you indeed are those who have been brought forth from death unto life in Christ. That is your most powerful testimony. I'll come back to these passages because I want to speak to them more directly. But in verse 22, he says to them, but here's in regards to this word, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers. As you could say, I hear. In fact, I spend all my time hearing the word of truth. That's wonderful. But do the word. Don't become just mere hearers. You might say, well, I'm slow to speak and I'm slow to anger and I'm I'm quick to hear. I'm a hearer of the word. James says, not if you're not doing it. If you're not doing the word, you're not a hearer of the word. Don't become just hearers merely. That's not the solution. It is doing the word that causes you to stand out in a lost world as those who have been brought forth from death unto life. It is the doing of the word. So in those times of trial and in all these exhortations, do the word, not just hearers of the word. I was asking the kids this morning and we're going through the book of James a little ahead of us and we just went around the room and I was kind of posing to them. If you said, if I said, if, you, if I take at face value that you say you have faith, pick one thing in your life that you think would be demonstrative of real faith. And they were, they were struggling to answer that. And that's the emphasis we brought home. Are there, is there manifestation of the real faith 
that you've exercised? Is there fruit flowing out of that profession of faith? Because James later on here says the demons believe and they actually tremble. They actually have some manifestation of works in regards to their beliefs, but they're not saved. I mean, they're not faith as the believer has faith. It's just so powerful to me what James is sharing here because it's so, it's so necessary. In fact, as I was thinking about this, this beginning statement, count it all joy, brethren, when you fall under diverse trials, it seems to me like the letter is unfolding as a description of how to find the joy in that. It seems impossible that we should do that. Well, we're definitely not going to know the joy if we're taken over in the midst of trials by the impulses of the flesh and we're just following those along and being carried along by those things, speaking rashly, speaking harshly, without thought, and letting that escalate into anger. At best, it will only intensify the trial. And at worst, it may escalate the trial into something more than it needed to be. And I just think there's sound wisdom in that. Stand with me this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for how sharp it is in dissecting uh, us. Lord, when I read this passage and have studied this this week, Lord, I could just see, uh, look back in, in the years past, Father, and just see how, how often and how consistently I was carried along by the exact opposite of what James is calling for here. And Father, I thank you that in Christ and by the truth of your word and through your spirit that we can change the directions of our lives. We need not leave this place continuing to follow the impulses of the flesh. As Christians, we have the word here. And Father, we have our guidance. And Father, I do recognize that everyone in this room is under some degree of trial and, and testing even today. Not because you don't know what we, we will do, but Father, because we ourselves are not aware of just how much we are carried along by the, by the old impulses. And by your grace and through the cross, Father, I pray that this, we could more and more be crucifying the old man. We don't want to live our lives by his impulses anymore. We want to live according to truth and by faith. And we want to be manifested in this world and even in the most severe of trials as those who are different from the world, those who have been called forth, brought forth from this world by the word of truth. And so, Father, let us not abandon that word of truth in times of trial and crisis. Let us hold fast to it and let it shape the way we live and live our lives and the way we respond in times of difficulty. We trust that this can happen by your mercy and through, cross, through Christ and the cross. So, Father, we commit everyone today, myself included, to that mercy and pray that you would accomplish your perfect will in each of our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.